Well, if you would turn uh, with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. And uh, we're going to read together uh, verses 1 to 17, uh, the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And this passage is where uh, I'm going to be preaching from this morning. Uh, Matthew chapter 1, uh, verses 1 to 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. And Salmon, the father of Boaz, by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of David, the king. And David was the father of Solomon, by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asaph. And Asaph, the father of Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram, and Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers, at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliad, and Eliad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Christ, the Christ, 14 generations. This is God's word. And it's one of those readings that um, if you're ever asked to do a Bible reading, you think, I don't want to do this one because <laughs> of all the names. But just as a hint, if you're ever asked, if you just say it with confidence, you'll be fine. Now, uh, the British uh, royal family at the moment, whilst it's making the news for lots of kind of not very nice reasons... It is actually in uh, really good shape. Uh, there are two heirs to the throne, and there are many spares to the throne as well. 
there are lots of uh, members of that family who are able to claim to have a legitimate um, succession to the throne of our country. Uh, It was a year ago, or just over a year ago, that Queen Elizabeth II died, and it was seamless that the in the succession of King Charles III. Uh, the very next day after she died at St. James's Palace, there was an announcement that King Charles III was the legitimate king of the United Kingdom and his dominions. And nobody uh, raised a hand and said, well, I don't think he's the right king. They might have thought, There might be a better person for the job, but nobody ever raised their hand and said, he's not the legitimate king. Imagine for a moment if if I thought, actually, you know what, I have a better claim. And so the day after the queen dies, I drive to St. James's Palace. I tap the shoulder of the person making the announcement and I say, hold on a minute, I've got a better claim than him. What would he or she say to me? They would say, well, prove it. You need to prove that you are the legitimate king of the United Kingdom. There once was a King Stephen. There hasn't been another. I have to prove that I am King Stephen II. And I would pull out my family records, and I would show them. And guess what they would show? I have no claim at all. (laughs) I am not the rightful king of this country. Legitimacy is important if someone is going to make a claim to be a king. And in Matthew's gospel, Matthew is making the claim that Jesus Christ is the king over God's people. And it's important, therefore, that he can prove he's the rightful king. Uh, in In the gospels... We see that Jesus gives everything for us as he dies on the cross and he rises from the dead. And he requires everything of us as we take up our cross and follow him as our king. And if we are going to give our lives to following this king, we had better make sure that we know for sure that he is the legitimate king. And that's where Matthew begins his gospel, by showing us the legitimacy of the king. And that's the the kind of title of this sermon, the legitimacy of the king. And it's shown in this beginning through the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Uh, We don't see this at first, but for Matthew, there is a genuine excitement about being able to write the first verse of his book. Notice what he says there. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, that might not be for any of us the most exciting verse in the Bible. But for Matthew and for the Jewish people who have been waiting for hundreds of years for their Messiah to come, this is very exciting news. Jesus is the son of David, the son of Abraham. In fact, the word Christ is important here. Christ is not his surname. 
It is a title. It means anointed one. It means Messiah. And for the Old Testament people of God, it was the one who they have been waiting for to come and to rule over God's people and to fulfill all of the blessings of the Old Testament given to Abraham and to David and to an Old Testament people. This was what they were waiting for. And for the people of of Jesus' day, the people who were alive when he was born, they were under the occupation of the Romans and they were under uh, their authority. It looked like God had abandoned them. And so this was the most exciting news of all. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. But how do we know for sure that he is this most exciting person? Well, how can we know? We can know through this genealogy. I wonder, though, uh, whether you can think about what it is to you that makes you know for sure that Jesus is who he says he is. What is it about Jesus that, that gives him legitimacy in your eyes? For some, it may be uh, the miracles that he performed. That's impressive. That's weighty, isn't it? Um, I was told uh, of, a, of a Muslim man doing the Christianity Explored course. Uh, he said that what gave him um, a grasp of the legitimacy of Jesus was that he could forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. But for the Jewish people here, steeped in the Old Testament, what gave him legitimacy was that he could show he had the right lineage. Now, in the Bible, there are lots of genealogies, uh, and, and they show a legitimacy of some kind. And a good example is in the book of Ezra. In Ezra chapter 2, the people are trying to work out who was a legitimate priest. They want to worship correctly and to honor God, and to, so they have to have the right people in place. And to prove they were right... They had to show their family records. So in Ezra chapter 2 and verse 62, we read, They searched for their family record, but they could not find them, and so were excluded from the priesthood as unclean. So those that couldn't prove that they had the right lineage were shown to be unclean and couldn't be a priest. Genealogy matters if someone was to become a priest. How much more for the one declaring to be Messiah? And it's amazing that Jesus can show us he's king in so many ways, through his miracles and through his forgiveness of sins. But here we see it in his lineage. It all kind of adds to the weight of us knowing for sure that Jesus is the saviour. And as we look at this genealogy, I want us to see three lessons about Jesus' kingship that Matthew is showing us in this passage. Three lessons. Lesson number one. Jesus is the king with perfect legitimacy. Jesus is the king with perfect legitimacy. So notice again in verse one who he descends from. First of all, 
He is the son of David and the son of Abraham. These two men are vitally important because it was to them that was given the promises that the Messiah would fulfill. So for Abraham, in Genesis, we read of the promise given to him in chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Genesis 12, 1 to 3 says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So he was promised a land, many descendants, and that they would be a blessing to all nations. The promise was expanded on and reaffirmed in Genesis 15 and 17. And so in order for the Messiah to be legitimate, he had to descend from Abraham. It was to Abraham and his descendants that the promise was given that all nations would be blessed. And so if this Messiah was going to be legitimate, he had to come through Abraham. But before being a son of Abraham, Matthew highlights that Jesus is a son of David. Because to David also a great promise was given to his descendants. So in 2 Samuel 7 verse 16 we read, And your house... And your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. And in Psalm 89, which we we sang some of a moment ago, we read of David's throne. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. So there's more that we could say about these things. But what we can see here is that for Jesus to be the legitimate king, he had to come from both Abraham and he had to come from David. Abraham and David. But what's interesting in verse 1 is will you notice there that David is given precedence. Do you notice Abraham, although was born first, is not the first one mentioned. He's the son of David and the son of Abraham. Why would Matthew want to put David first and then Abraham when they were born in the opposite way round? Well, his name actually comes before Abraham in the genealogy. And the name David also appears in verses 6 and verse 17 as well. And at various points through the book of Matthew. Why is this? Because Matthew is showing us that Jesus is a king. He is the king. That's his big point. Jesus is king. It's made clear in other ways too. We're not going to turn there now, but Luke also has a genealogy of Jesus in Luke chapter 3. And it's different in in a number of ways, but one significant way is that the names are different. The names are the same from Abraham to David, but after David they change With Matthew saying Solomon and Luke saying Nathan. Why is it different? The reason is to do with purpose. Luke's genealogy in fact goes all the way back to Adam. And Luke's purpose is to show the bloodline of Jesus all the way back to Adam. The point being that Jesus is a man. 
So he records the actual biological fathers of each generation. He uses the phrase, the son of, in Luke's gospel. Matthew has a different kind of genealogy. He shows the legal descent for the purpose of being heir to the throne, which is not always biological. So, for example, it's easy to illustrate this because we live in a country that has a monarchy. But William IV okay, was the king of Great Britain before Queen Victoria was. But he was not Queen Victoria's father. Queen Victoria descended, ascended the throne because he had no other legitimate heirs. She was not his daughter. But in the line of succession, if you were to read the kings and queens of England, it would be William IV and then Queen Victoria. Do you see that? And that, that's what Matthew's doing in his genealogy here. He's showing not a bloodline in that sense, but who is the legitimate king of Israel. And Luke and Matthew answer two different questions then. Luke says, who is the biological father? Matthew says, who is the heir? And the reason Matthew does that is because he is showing that Jesus is the legitimate king from the line of David. In fact, Matthew structures this genealogy in such a way as to point out Jesus being the king because he strangely skips kings in various places. So, for example, when we read at the end of verse 8, Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, there are then generations missing. Kings Ahaziah, Joash, and Amaziah, they're not there. Why is this? Well, notice at the end of verse 17. It says, thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Can you see that Matthew is purposefully breaking the genealogy down into 14 generations three times? This is deliberate. He wasn't being absent-minded in missing kings out. The number 14 was making a point, which his readers would understand. Now, the question is, what is the point? And commentators disagree on what the point is, to be honest. Some say it was for memorization. Uh, Others say that 14 is divisible by 7, and a perfect number for a perfect king. Others say that because Hebrew letters had corresponding numbers, the numbers added together to make the name David whose name was made up with those 14 letters. I don't know. But what we can all agree on is that the purpose of it was to highlight that Jesus uniquely was the king of Israel. He uniquely can be the Messiah who he claims to be. That's the big point. Another lesson we see, though, with these three groups of 14 is some symmetry that is intentional. From Abraham to David, the trajectory of the people of God kind of goes upwards as they grew and ended up with their greatest king, David. Then it kind of goes downwards, and and Babylon was the, the worst thing that happened to God's people. So much so it was thought that the promises of God had come to an end. But then the trajectory goes upwards again with the return to the land and the temple being rebuilt under Zerubbabel 
But then there's this final culmination at the end. Jesus has arrived. The king of God's people who is the Messiah. And so Matthew basically, in short, as we tie those lessons, kind of tie them up together. Matthew goes to great effort to show us that the Messiah, Jesus, is the legitimate king. He is the perfect king with perfect legitimacy. Now this is vitally important for us. Because we need to know that he is that perfect king. Uh, some, if you, most of you, I'm sure, uh, use email. Uh, and you get all sorts of scam emails, don't you? And you can tell often that they are scams, although sometimes they are very clever, uh, just if you look at the email address. If you click in to see the address, you can see that isn't legitimate. You can see that's not from the company they are claiming to be. But what they are trying to do is to dupe you into thinking that they are legitimate so that you will give them your money. And some people have lost thousands of pounds being scammed by these illegitimate companies. We need to be sure that these emails are right. Because otherwise, we can end up losing everything financially. How much more do we need to know for sure that Jesus isn't a scam artist who has come to try and get a few followers? but that he is the real legitimate king who has every right to say to us, follow me, take up your cross, give everything. Have we been duped? Are we being stupid? No, no. Jesus is king. Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one who blesses all nations. He is the one who forgives all of our sins. He is the one who gives us eternal life. He is the one who has the right to rule over everything, including our small uh, lives in this world. He is the king. But there are others who will claim legitimacy over your life. Others who will try and scam you, not necessarily for your money, but for your lives. There are other religions, other religious leaders all of whom have followers who are dead, by the way. Jesus is alive. That's another, at uh, the end of Matthew's gospel, he shows his legitimacy in that way. Uh, there's the, the scam of, of secularism, that there is no God, that we can live for the here and now. This is all that matters. That's a scam. There is the scam of thinking we can rule ourselves. Some even think that they can be good enough on their own to get to heaven. That's a scam. Straight out of hell. You're not good enough. But Jesus is. Our family and friends can call you away from Jesus and say, follow us. Our family can be the king over our lives. But none of those are legitimate ways of salvation. None of those are even the best way we can live our lives. They are all scam emails asking you to give them your lives but they end up destroying us and taking everything Jesus is the king Jesus is the king so that's the first the first big lesson Jesus is the king with perfect legitimacy but secondly 
Jesus is the king with not so perfect ancestors. Jesus is the king with not so perfect ancestors. Uh, Perhaps some of you have family members that perhaps you wish you didn't have. Uh, Perhaps some of you have family ancestors that you are ashamed of. Um, My... um, I, I, actually, I, I was born in Devon, but my mum uh, initially came from Birmingham. And when we moved back north, she thought we were crazy because she felt she escaped to Devon, and we've gone back uh, to the Midlands. Uh, but she found out um, when she retired and she did some family history that uh, we descend from um, some members of the Peaky Blinders gang. Now, my mum was, for some reason, dead proud of this. I don't know why. Uh, I wasn't really necessarily proud of it, but there we go. We have ancestors that are, shall we say, dodgy. But Jesus, although he is without the stain of sin himself, the same cannot be said of his ancestors. Uh, You see in this list kings, some of which overall can be seen as quite good, Uh, So David, Asa, Jehoshaphat, Hezekiah, all of whom were described in the book of Kings as doing what was right in the eyes of the Lord. But at the same time, you have kings like Manasseh, who in 2 Kings chapter 1 verse 16 says, he shed so much innocent blood that he filled Jerusalem from end to end. But more striking, I think, than any of these evil kings or the good ones is in this list the mention of four women. There is Tamar in verse 3, Rahab and Ruth in verse 5, and Bathsheba under the title of Uriah's wife in verse 6. Do you notice those names there? In one sense, this is striking because women were not usually included in genealogies. Because inheritance was to the firstborn son from the father. In fact, it's only been in the last couple of years that in our country, women are allowed to inherit the throne of our country. Um, Up until recently, it was only uh, the firstborn male, and we'd have a queen if there was no other men. But in this time, women were completely illegitimate, and in fact, women were seen as second-class citizens. Matthew's making an interesting point here if he's going to put women in his genealogy of Jesus. What is that point? Well, the point is, and the common factor of all of them, is that all of these women were outcasts in some way. Uh, We can't go into the stories of all of them, but let me just give a brief explanation. Uh, So Tamar, who we see in verse 3, She was the daughter-in-law of Judah in Genesis 38. And Judah had three sons. The eldest married Tamar, but uh, they died before they conceived. And, and And so Tamar didn't have any children. She was given to the second son, but he didn't conceive by her, or she didn't conceive by him. He, she was given to the third son, and She didn't conceive by him. And so Tamar pretended to be a prostitute and slept with her father-in-law Judah and had twin boys, Perez and Zerah. The point here is that she was an outcast because of her sexual immorality with her father-in-law. 
And they rejected her because she hadn't borne children during her life in Genesis 38. So she was an outcast. Rahab, again, was known as a prostitute. That's, every time Rahab's name is mentioned in the Bible, she's always known as Rahab the harlot or Rahab the prostitute. You can read her story in Joshua chapter 2. Again, a foreigner and a prostitute. Ruth, although nothing is sexually improper about her, she was an outcast because she was a foreigner from Moab. And the Moabites came from the son of an incestuous relationship between Lot and one of his daughters. A Moabite was an outcast. And Bathsheba, well, she was the wife of Uriah, whom David called to, uh, who David had an affair with. And the name of her husband is mentioned because Matthew is making the point that, that she was with David an adulteress. Now, some may argue it wasn't her fault. It was David's. And whilst this may be true, she still had a tarnished name. But she was also married to Uriah the Hittite, a foreigner, and so an outcast. What's the point? Well, I think on one level, this is showing the value that God has for women in particular. In the days when this was written, women, as I've said, were second-class citizens. They did not have value in the same way that men did. No king or emperor would want to put women in their genealogy because they wouldn't matter to him. But they matter to Jesus. Do you see that? They matter to Jesus. And the church of Jesus Christ, as always when functioning as God intends, promoted and promotes the cause of women and utilizes their gifts in the church and are proud to call women members of their family. Um, all churches today, mine and this church included, need to make sure we continue that biblical mandate to elevate and help women in our society. Who often suffer the same kind of things today as the women in this list did. Problems of, of abuse and shame and all sorts of things. Jesus Christ is proud to have them in his genealogy. But more generally, and this applies to men too, these people are outcasts and are part of the family of the Messiah. They are people who have been tarnished, ashamed, often through no fault of their own. They would have felt outcasts, and in, I don't, know, I don't know this congregation personally, but I know my congregation. In my congregation, we have foreigners. We have people who have been abused. We have people who have been divorced. We have people who are criminals. We have people who have a tarnished name. We have people who feel shame for all sorts of reasons. But here we see that Jesus claims them as his family. And Hebrews chapter 2 and verse 11 says that he is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. Isn't that wonderful? That's good news, isn't it? That no matter who you are, and no matter what you've done, and no matter how much of an outcast you may be in the world, Jesus has your name written in his family, if you are his, if you have come to him for forgiveness of sins. 
That's good news. Often we are defined by what society outcasts us for. Too many people live their lives as victims of their circumstances. But here we see that you are defined not by what has happened to you, but who you are in Christ, a member of his family. And the great thing for us is that we can see in these people that we can be part of his family. If you are dysfunctional, if you feel shamed and tarnished, you will fit right in to the family of Jesus. Welcome to the family. But there are important applications for us too as God's people. As well as accepting the welcome as God's family, we also need to treat people as members of God's family. We mustn't judge them based on their backgrounds. It can be easy to label people uh, from, a, from, a, from a Christian or a non-Christian family. I come from a non-Christian family. And when I was a child, I went to a, a youth um, a weekend and uh, they did a, a Bible quiz, and I realized I was the only member of a non-believing family at this, this event. And they, 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 at first, gave me different questions from everyone else, assuming that I didn't know the Bible because I was in a non-Christian family. Well, I, I was saved, and I read the Bible. Like, I, I read it a lot, and I, I thought, this is, this is ridiculous. So I started answering the questions. And they realized I did know some stuff. And I, I smashed everyone at that Bible quiz. You know that? And I, I smashed a lot of them. I was like, I won it. I was like, you know, because I can... But it was, it was wrong to judge as, as kind of lower because my, my, my family were, was, was broken and, and wasn't Christian. But we mustn't judge people on those things, on class or marital status or education. No. We are members of God's family and he welcomes us as, as we are. But also, isn't it amazing that Matthew doesn't hide these people away from Jesus? He's pleased to have them. And in the church family, in any church family, you will have people that you uh, might think are a little bit awkward or you might want to hide them away or... No. Jesus doesn't hide anyone away. He's pleased to have you as part of his family and we should be pleased to have one another as well. So, he's the perfect legitimate king, but he's the king that has not so perfect ancestors. But although Jesus is from a a dodgy background, the sin of his ancestors was not inherited by Jesus. In fact, Jesus was unique from all of the heirs in that list. Look at verse 16 with me. It says, And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary... And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Notice what Matthew is doing here. Joseph is not the father of Jesus. Mary is the mother. But it's Joseph's ancestors, Joseph's lineage here. Matthew makes the point that whilst Mary was the mother, Joseph is not the father. If Joseph isn't the father, who is the father? Well, God is the Father, isn't he? God is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But Matthew's making another um, important point. Here's the lesson, number three. Jesus is king, both human and divine. Human and divine. So Jesus Christ is a real man, 
born to a real woman in the flesh. When we see Jesus in the Bible, we see that he's a man, 100% human. But he wasn't conceived in the normal way. Because in the next passage in Matthew, we see that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit. So he is 100% man, but he's also 100% God. And this is important because Jesus is our mediator. Mediation is where someone goes between two parties who are unreconciled. And humans and God are not reconciled because God is holy and humans are sinful. But Jesus Christ, being both man and God, is the mediator that brings them together. And here is how this works in this genealogy. Notice how Joseph is not the father of Jesus, but Jesus inherits the kingship from him. How is that right? Because in marrying Mary, Joseph becomes the earthly, legal father of Jesus by adoption. Joseph, um, in fact, often we say, we'll say wrongly, Joseph wasn't the father of Jesus. God was. That's half right. God is the father of Jesus, but so was Joseph in the sense that Joseph adopted Jesus. So my wife Paula is adopted... And her father is called Dad. He is her father. Jesus would have called Joseph whatever, you know, the the Hebrew, uh, Abba or whatever it would be. He would have had a fatherly relationship with Joseph because Joseph adopted Jesus into his family. And my wife being adopted means she inherits legally the inheritance from her parents. And Jesus inherits from Joseph. And so from Joseph, Jesus inherits the legal right to be the king of Israel, because Joseph was the next in line. And so he was placed in an earthly family where he could legitimately be the king by adoption. Jesus condescended to earth and became part of the one human family that enabled him to be the Messiah. And so he could fulfill the promises to David and to Abraham. And to fulfill these promises, Jesus, as God, lived a perfect life. And he died in our place on the cross and he rose from the dead, all of which means we can have that relationship with God because he takes our place and we can be forgiven of our sin. And so when we put our faith in Jesus Christ and we receive the forgiveness of sins, we too are adopted into the family of God. So Jesus was adopted into an earthly family so that we can be adopted by the, by the heavenly father And inherit all of the blessings of Christ. He mediates between God and man, bringing us both together and giving us that relationship with God as our Father. He's the the legitimate king because he is both God and he is man. Only Jesus can bring us into relationship with God. So, Jesus is is king. And we need to be reminded of that every day of our lives, don't we? It's not just a message for Christmas season. The fact that Jesus is king is a message for every day. That we wake up and say, Jesus, you are my king. God, you are my father. And today I'm going to follow you. Thank you that you've welcomed me into your family. Despite what my past is like, despite what I've been labeled by the world, thank you that I am yours. And we can, in the light of all of that, live our lives for the glory of the God who made us and of the King 
who is the perfect legitimate king over all. So this Christmas, be encouraged that Jesus is king. And let me encourage you to encourage others with that same gospel message. That he is king of kings and lord of lords and has come to save us from our sins. May you have success as you preach that gospel in the weeks ahead. And may it encourage you today as you follow Jesus Christ yourselves.